Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We are going to look at Genesis 12, same verses again tonight. And you might think like, man, Britain's getting a lot of mileage out of a couple of verses. Um, but here's the thing. I have started my, you know, uh, I'm actually still going on my try to read the Bible every day over the course of the year kind of plan, you know. And um, uh, I usually get through Genesis and Exodus and all that kind of stuff, but right now I'm still going. If you read Genesis, what you'll notice is that these verses are alluded to over and over and over again. And anytime there's like a huge obstacle in what God's doing, anytime something amazing happens, anytime a new generation of leadership is born, anytime there are new developments in history, uh, especially uh, verse, the second half of verse 3 is reiterated over and over again. It's like God is saying, this is my plan, remember what's going to happen. He keeps saying, and I'm going to bless the nations through you. So much so that when you get to the New Testament in Galatians 3, Paul talks to the first century church, and he actually says this, y'all remember the gospel was preached to Abraham. And then he quotes Genesis 12, the second half of Genesis 12, 3, and he says, this is the gospel, that through you I will bless the nations. So Paul actually calls the second half of Genesis 12, 3, the gospel. So that's why we're looking at it for two nights. Is I want to propose to you, this is the thesis statement for God, for what He's doing in this world. This is God's mission. So I'm going to read it and we'll consider it. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you will I curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brothers and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words, and I pray that as we are challenged by them, I pray that you would give us understanding, um, but not just understanding, you would give us uh, new life, that you would give us vision, um, that you would change our hearts, that we would be captured by something bigger than ourselves. We need you, Holy Spirit, to be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. So what we talked about last week, and we're going to continue to talk about this week, is this idea that God has a mission. And uh, a mission is something uh, that everyone has. Wherever you are, um, however you identify spiritually or religiously, a mission is just an orienting hope or purpose. And I mean both of those words, that orienting hope. What I mean by orienting is that it's something that actually directs all of your time and your resources and your decisions. It directs all of them. And what I mean by hope or purpose is that it's something that will give your life value. So it orients you and gives you hope and purpose. And everybody has one. And there's really kind of three questions I would urge all of you to ask wherever you are, whether or not you believe the Bible or believe in Jesus or anything. These are good questions to ask. And the first question is this. Can you identify your mission? You have one. You make decisions with purpose. 
the decisions not just for the classes you take and the job you're going to take, but for the food you put on your plate at lunch and what time you go to bed. All of those you're making with purpose. You're not making random choices. So can you identify your mission? That's the first question that's worth asking of yourself. Here's the second question. Now can you be honest and identify your mission? And here's what I mean by that. Usually our answer to the first question is a PR campaign. Something that like, sounds nice and admirable and people will applaud and all that kind of stuff. So my second question is, can you be honest and identify your mission? And here's what I mean. I, Elizabeth and I do premarital counseling. I do weddings. I talk to people about relationships all the time. And when people are getting excited about the prospect of getting married, they talk about how like, all, I, I will love them the rest of my life no matter what it takes. And they get excited and they use this exalted language about how excited they are about loving this person. Then, in the wedding ceremony, they'll make all these vows, right, publicly. I will love them no matter what, right? And all the vows are basically, I will love them no matter how bad it gets. But here's what happens. It gets really bad. And then people say, well, when I said I'll love them no matter how bad it gets, I didn't really mean that. And here's my point. They thought their mission was to love this person forever. But what they realized about themselves is, well, actually, I was just willing to love them as long as they made me happy. Which meant that their fundamental mission was their personal happiness, not loving the person forever. And those things can come at odds at times. That's what I mean by the fact that in a lot of ways, we have trouble being honest with ourselves about our real mission. What is your mission? First question. Now that you get that lie out of the way, what really is your mission? Can you be honest? And then here's the third question. Is it worthy of a human life? Because that's what it's going to cost you. It's the thing you devote your life to. Evaluate it. Is it worthy of a human life? And what I want to do, what, if you're beginning to wrestle with you're like, the claims of Scripture and what God is really asking you to and calling His people into... Here's what it will feel like. Two weeks ago, I got a haircut, and as I was... <laughs> that sounds trivial. Don't worry. It makes a point. It is trivial, but the point's not. Um, and the lady... I'm, I'm 38 years old. And the lady said, Do you know your part is on the right side of your head, not the left? I'm 38 years old. I'm close to like four decades of parting my hair one way. And this woman tells me, and she combs it that way. And I'm like trying it out right now. I'm not sure what I think. And I don't want your comments because I feel insecure about it. So don't tell me anything afterwards because if you compliment it, I'll feel like you're kind of just being, um, kind of placating me. And I don't know. I don't know how to deal with it right now. But that's not the point. Here's my point. For 38 years, I looked in the mirror and thought I was supposed to be one way. And that day, I looked in the mirror and thought, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be the exact opposite. (laughs) Here's how this is relevant. When you begin to wrestle, wherever you are, you know that you're wrestling with Scripture and the God of Scripture when you realize, oh, for my whole life, I was living this way, but I feel like what He's telling me is He's not accenting this life. He's turning me 180 degrees in the other direction. If it's uncomfortable, if you don't want to do it, if you feel like it turns everything upside down, you're probably actually then dealing with the God of Scripture. If it's just kind of accenting the life you've already created for yourself a little bit, then you're probably dealing with a genie that looks a lot like you and not the God of Scripture. When we come into contact with God, 
almost all the things he's doing in her life, he is turning it completely upside down. It should feel like you look in the mirror and think, if what he says is true, my whole life looked this way, and he's telling me it's supposed to look the exact opposite now. You kind of look in the mirror and you think, if I do this, I will look the exact opposite of who I was up until this point. And, and in some ways, the way we summarized these verses was just that uh, last line from the third verse of joy to the world. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And what we said last week, quickly, is this, is to be in Jesus, to know God, means that he blesses you for the purpose of you blessing others. That it is, that, and one of the things we said is that means that you are not a consumer. That to be a Christian is not like, ah, I'm so great, God likes, I'm so glad that God likes me so much, now I'm happy. You're not a consumer, you're a steward. He gives you His blessing so that you may share it. And then the other thing we said is that it's both physical and spiritual. That He cares about people's physical and spiritual need, not one at the expense of the other. Now we make those errors. That's what we said last week. I want to talk about three keys to that this week that are also present in these verses. And those three keys are on there. That it requires community, it requires grace, and it requires faith. So the first thing is this. It requires community. God says, Abram, I will make you uh, a great nation. And all throughout the rest of Genesis, over and over again, he's going to reiterate that promise. I will make you a father, to, uh, a father to a multitude of nations in Genesis 17 and 22 and chapter 46. On and on and on again, he reiterates that promise that, Abram, this isn't you that's going to bless the world. It's actually the people of you that are going to bless the world. He is making a community. And one of the places that that's expressed in the New Testament is in 1 Peter. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that y'all, the Greek is second person plural, may proclaim, this is true actually, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Most of the you that is translated you in the Bible are second person plural. We need the y'all version of the Bible. Here's my point. God intends for us to bless the world, not you. He did not give it, that mission, to you. Uh, Peter says, when he invokes that language of a holy priesthood, what a royal, he says, my people are a holy priesthood. And holy means that they're set apart for purpose, and the purpose is to be a priesthood. And this is what a priest does. A priest connects people to God. He's saying that God's design for the church is not to create an insular community that obsesses about itself and its own preservation and its own strength and its power and its influence. He's saying the church exists for the people around it. It exists to serve the community in which it resides. One of the things we want RUF to be is something that serves Stanford, a community that serves this community. This is the important thing. God's mission is not your individual mission. It's ours. His purpose is not to use you. It is to use us. This means you can't do it alone. This means you in your Bible, in your dorm room, by yourself, trying to have a consistent devotional life, saying pat yourself on the back with your spiritual exercises. It's not Christianity. You're not equipped to do it alone. 
It was never God's purpose to equip you to do it alone. It was only ever his design for his people to do it together. The term omnicompetent, which is what we all idolize and want to be, has no place in the economy of God's kingdom. The image of the church is a body of different parts holding fast to one head. So what kind of community does God's mission create? Kind of three aspects of that really quickly. The first thing is a community that's been created by God's mission is welcoming. It's a welcoming. Uh, if y'all were at Grace two weekends ago, David Jones, the pastor, said people often belong before they believe. People actually feel the welcome and enjoyment of Christ before they really kind of recognize the person of Jesus. In the Gospels, one of the resounding themes that happens over and over again, one of the things Jesus is most adamant about is about welcoming and enjoying the least likely people. And the people that he gets the most frustrated with are the people who go out into the world and say, but those certain types of people don't belong near Jesus and create barriers for them. So Jesus is always going and welcoming the least likely socially, the least likely morally, the least likely racially, the least likely religiously. And Paul actually says in his letters that none of these things are barriers to God's love. And when those things are barriers for friendship and welcome in the church, when we walk into a religious setting and identify people visually, or we identify their history, or we identify their race from across the room and think, I don't know if I can relate to them then we don't understand God's mission. We don't understand His community. Then some, That actually means something other than Jesus' love is our center. God's people are a welcoming people, a profusely welcoming people, people who delight newcomers, who befriend people. Welcome includes, but also extends beyond the, initial, the welcome table, which is a great thing. It's welcoming into friendship, into getting to know one another. Because the reality is, you can neither enjoy nor serve somebody in a meaningful way until you actually know them. You can be nice up to a point, but if you want to really love somebody well, if you want to serve them, if you want to uh, care about them, if you want to enjoy them, you have to know them. So welcome is far more than a first greeting. Uh, The community that God's mission creates is a welcoming community. It's also an interdependent community. You know, we all want to be omnicompetent. We all look at people, whether it's in our profession or maybe in the church or maybe socially, and we think, I want to have all those skills. When I have all those skills, I'll be content with who I am. And when Paul says the church is a body, that actually means everybody's a different part and that everybody lacks a ton of skills intentionally for the express purpose of creating a need in you to connect with each other. Right? Brittany is great at the welcome table. She sits up there and she's great at it. I am terrible at the welcome table. Jess has tons of feelings. Tons of feelings. I don't have a lot of feelings. I know that scares y'all a little bit, but I have a lot of ideas. <laughs> and when Jess and I get together, like feelings and ideas actually kind of complement and all that kind of stuff. Right? Eric, 
Eric is an amazing gift giver. And I know that sounds really weird, but I'll give you a perfect example of this. This doesn't make any sense to any of y'all. This is a weight collar that Eric had custom made to say roll pad on it and gave me this for Christmas. Okay, that is someone who is an amazingly thoughtful gift giver, right? So the rest of us just kind of bought like silly gifts that you could kind of give anybody. <laughs> The point is not that we need to become like Brittany or Jess or Eric, you need to become like me. The point is, God has intentionally made a community of really, really different people. And it was intended to be that way. And what that means is, if you sit in here and you look at someone and you think, that's the last person I think I connect with, that means that's the problem that has, that, that means that that's the person that might have the most to give you. And if you sit in here and you look at the whole room and you think, I cannot connect with these people at all, that probably means you have more to offer us than anyone else. The normal things we use to divide each other are actually the very gifts that God is giving the church through you. If you feel like you don't fit here, that means you're the most important person to RUF tonight. I hope you feel the weight of that and want to come back because we need you. It's an interdependent community. God made it so that we do need each other. Loneliness, the experience of loneliness is a beacon. It is a light on the dashboard. Don't ignore it. It is the thing telling you you need to be with people to be full and to understand what God is doing. God's uh, community is welcoming. It's interdependent. And lastly, it rejoices. If you read the Bible, everybody gets disappointed in this first, but let me explain it. God's story of redemption ends in worship. And we all think that's boring, and that's because we've read too many far side comics, and that informs the understanding of heaven. But here's what C.S. Lewis says about praise and worship. Because worship is kind of like mission. It's actually something everyone does a ton all the time. When you talk about the great things, about the thing you love, that's what praise is. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about it. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's the appointed consummation of enjoyment. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon a mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than they do for a tin can in the ditch or to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism that says man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we shall know then that these are the same thing For to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. You hear what he's saying? Praise is the consummation of enjoyment. We do this naturally all the time. So communion is being shaped by God's love and His mission. We'll be a worshiping community. When you... For those of you that know David Jones, the pastor at Grace Press, when you go to his house on a Saturday in the fall... You can't but not worship Tennessee football, which actually means you shouldn't go there for a Saturday in the fall, but that's not the point. My point is, His worship invites you in. And invites everybody in, because He's so overjoyed about Tennessee football. That's another spiritual problem of His own. My point is this. 
Worship is inviting. Genuine and authentic worship is inviting. And it's the end result of the Christian rest and love of Jesus. What are the elements of God's mission? Community. Uh, a community that's welcoming and interdependent and worshiping. But secondly, God's mission doesn't work without grace. And grace is... People, we love platitudes uh, because they make us feel good and because we can blow them off really easily. And I was reminded recently of a, of a, um, a coach during an interview talked about how we always talk about perseverance and overcoming adversity and his team had just lost a game and he goes this is the adversity we've been talking about right we like that platitude until we get into the adversity well grace is kind of like that too it's a word we like to use a lot but we actually don't want to embrace what the real meaning of it is because this is what grace is grace is unmerited favor and blessing and goodness to the undeserving we like the word it makes us feel good Talk about being gracious and all that kind of stuff. Well, sit down and consider what it is. It is unmerited favor and goodness and blessing to those who don't deserve it, who have disqualified themselves from it. Grace is tough. And the clearest depiction of grace is the love of an enemy. That's the clearest crystal picture of grace. Jesus actually says, hey, loving your friends, by the way, there's nothing special about that. It requires no grace in a lot of ways to love your friends. But loving your enemy is the very heart of Christianity. And if nothing else tonight, wherever you are, just know this, take this home. The very heart of Christianity is utterly unique from anything else in the world because it is a man dying in sacrificial love for his enemy. A man who calls his enemies friends and then gives himself for them. That's the heart of God's love. That's the heart of His blessing. That's the heart of His love for you. It's not just doing good for undeserving people. It's doing good at personal cost for undeserving people. Casual, uncostly good for nice people. Anybody can do that. Casual, uncostly good for nice people. Sometimes... People want to empty Christianity of the cross. They, they want to take it out because it's a price too high and it's a price too bloody. We're like, let's make it a metaphor. But when you empty Christianity of the personal cost of God's gracious love to you, you empty Christianity of any real power to grab hold of your heart and actually to also radically transform you. This is not the story of like a kind of decent God who kind of forgives some people that kind of make some mistakes. God's response is not NBD, right? It's a great and holy God who at great cost himself forgave and reconciled people who wanted nothing to do with him. It's a big God who forgave big sin at big cost. That will change you. Because if Christianity was the story of God loves good people, His love is predicated on your performance. If that's the story, then what happens? What kind of people are produced by that kind of story? Nice but nasty people. Right? This is when uh, we know these people, because all of us have this in us, that what makes me special is that I'm better than you. This This is what social media is right now. Social media is where we're, as a culture, mastering the technique of 
passively declaring our superiority over each other. Right? Because you can't come out and say it now. We're all savvy enough to not say it explicitly. We just imply judgment all over the imply superiority to each other all the time. In Genesis 12, and we find this out about Abram later, we learn about more about his background in Joshua 24. Joshua 24 too says he was someone who at the time was worshiping other gods. God doesn't choose Abraham because Abraham is good and loves God. He doesn't know God and doesn't follow God. God chooses Abraham because God is good. Because he loves even his enemies. This distinction is so vital. It's the difference between transforming in vibrant faith in Jesus, being transformed by his love, and it's the difference between that and a religion that maybe uses the name of Jesus but will rip you up and shred everyone around you. God doesn't make how you live the basis for His love. His love is the basis for how you live. God doesn't make how you live the basis for His love. His love actually becomes the basis for how you live. And the difference between those things is huge. It's the difference between living by grace and living by law. Stanford is a law place. You live by the law here. You earn favor, you earn reward, you earn validation, acclamation, you earn more opportunities. They're bestowed upon you according to your performance. Fail and you're out. B's and you get a job at a second tier firm. A's and they'll get you into Harvard Med School. You live by the law here. Now what does it do to your soul when you live by law? When the only validation, affection, love, approval, acceptance, opportunities are given to you according to your performance, what will that do to you? Does it make you anxious? Anybody know any anxious people at Stanford? Does it make you live and die by comparison to others? Does it make you angry? Does it make you fearful? Does it make you judgmental? Does it make you envious? Listen, I would drink myself to death every weekend too if that was the way we were, I was living. Of course we got to drink ourselves through that. That's why people drink at Stanford. It's because this place is so horribly law-oriented and there's no grace here. The grace of God is the opposite of that. It is loving the unlovable. It is God loving us precisely when He knows the worst about us. Precisely at the moment when all logic would dictate that He rejects us. And you only begin to understand it when you finally realize it doesn't make sense because nothing else in the world works this way. You, and, and here's the thing about it. You can only, it's the only thing that can heal the world. Guess what? We know Trump ain't healing the world. Guess what? Hillary wasn't going to heal the world either. The only thing that's going to heal the world is when people begin to love their enemies. And here's the thing about loving your enemy. Here's the thing about grace. Is it's absurd. But here's the other thing about it is you can't give it until you've experienced it. You can't really live in any selfless way until you know that you're loved in this way. Until you know this kind of grace, until you have an experience of this kind of grace, you can't do anything selflessly up till then. Because self-concern and selfishness and self-calculation will drive everything you do and all your good works. Even your service is done in self-concern. We're constantly wondering, have I performed well enough? Have I proven myself good enough, see how good I am, see how well-rounded I am. You'll always be auditioning for approval and for love and for a verdict, whether it's for yourself, from your own approval and your own verdict, 
you won't be able to really embrace or understand the act of selflessness, the fact that grace is an act of selflessness for an enemy unless you're completely and thoroughly knowingly loved by this kind of grace. If you're like, God loves me, I can give my life away. I can operate without self-calculation. At the end of John, Jesus tells his followers, he says, the way the Father sent me, so I also send you. There's no calculation in Jesus' mind of what's rightly his and how he would benefit and where's the line when loving people kind of gets too costly and he needs to protect himself. It's not a part of his math. The amazing language of Philippians 2 is Jesus being in the very nature of God did not consider what he had, his equality with God, something that he should use for his own advantage. Jesus was never wondering about what he deserved. Jesus never asserted his rights. He was far more concerned with the privilege and the responsibility he had to serve and love others. He didn't think about personal cost. What if self-protection and personal benefit were no longer factors in your personal calculation of how you interact with others? God's people do undeserved good for undeserving others. And not because they're good enough to warrant it, not because you want to get something out of it, but simply because that's the manner in which God has loved you. Grace begets grace. The elements of God's mission, if it's God's mission, is that it's done together. It's that grace drives it. And lastly, it requires faith. God starts with Abram. And he just says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Hebrews 11 picks it up and says this. It says, calls us to look at Abraham as an example of faith. And it says, I'm going to mark it. By faith, sorry, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive his inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going to go. Abraham trusted God, and when God said go, but didn't tell him where he was going to go, Abraham just trusted him and walked. Abraham left all of his points of security in his life, right? His land, his household, his father, his family. And here's the thing about faith. Faith is a word that we misuse a lot as well. Faith in Scripture is it's the word used to describe when you act based on someone else's character, based on proper confidence in their character. That's what Abraham did. He acted because he had a proper confidence in God's character. And faith kind of like other things, it's kind of a fundamental act of being human. Almost every decision you make is actually faith-based. And this is what I mean by this. You ate food today. You didn't grow it yourself. Tons of people grew, manufactured, and touched and prepared that food before you did. You know what you did today? You ate in faith. You trusted a lot of different processes and a lot of different people when you put that hamburger in your mouth. Everybody's now scared, right? How many people touched my food? Every act of transportation, riding a bike, riding a car, riding a plane, you're all acting in faith. And the main thing you're trusting is not the instrumentation. The main thing you're trusting is the people involved. 
right? Every conversation you have is faith-based. When you open your mouth with someone over a cup of coffee, you're giving them information about yourself. That is an act of faith. Because every piece of information you give someone is, is giving them power. Stanford, you entrusted your education to Stanford. You trust that it will deliver on its promises. That's why you came here. You had a proper confidence in Stanford. Faith is basing your actions and your hopes on the character of something other than you. And that's what Abraham did. He thought, I don't know where this is going to go. Hebrew tells us he didn't know where he was going to go. I don't know where I'm going to go, but I'll trust God and I'll take the first step. Here's what faith isn't, just to clarify. Faith is not wanting something to be true. And being a Christian is not wanting the gospel to be true. And just kind of being a strong Christian is not wanting it more. It's not what faith is. That's wishful thinking. That's something sometimes athletes who are Christians will we'll talk about, like, we just believed that God wants to win, which is like so belittling of all the athletes that lost, and just like, you're making a judgment on their own Christian faith. Believing is not just like wanting really badly God to give you something. It's not faith. That's just wanting really badly for God to give you something. It's okay. It's not faith. Faith is also not willpower. Here's what willpower is. Willpower is willpower. But here's what I mean. Faith is trusting God. So let me give you an example. You enter into a situation where you have a D in a class and you now have access to the answers of the final. You, willpower says resist, resist, resist. What willpower does is it appeals to the self. Like, come on, I know this isn't right. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Willpower appeals to the self. Faith says, God, I'm going to trust you. I want to take it up, but I'm going to trust you're, the fact that you said integrity and truth-telling is kind of just the heart of being human and these things are important. See, faith looks outside of the self. Because the world says, get the grade, no one's going to probably know, everybody does it, everybody would do it, you'll increase the odds for getting the job at Goldman. Right? Faith says, well, I'll just trust you, God. Willpower makes you proud. Here's what faith does. Faith actually draws you nearer to God. Just last week, I was talking to a friend, and he was struggling. He was like, he was struggling with chastity, saying this girl that he really loves, and he's like, I know that God has called us to chastity, um, that, that sexuality was for marriage. He says it's really hard living with that conviction and trusting God on this. It's painfully hard. And he was just lamenting that. But here's the thing. This is what's happening between him and God right now because he's not relying on willpower. He's just saying, I'm just going to trust God on this. It's hard. He is drawing closer to God. He is becoming... God is becoming sweeter to him. God is becoming more necessary to him. This is actually enriching his relationship with God to actually live by conviction, to live by faith. So what does this faith look like? Two things. We're done real quickly. Um... First of all, it means trusting in His grace. Isaiah 30 says this, In repentance and rest you'll be saved. It connects this idea of repentance and this idea of rest. And what trusting in His grace means, having faith in Jesus means, is it means that you stop your self-salvation strategy. You actually set it aside. You actually set aside your mission for using all of your resources to secure for yourself the life you want and the approval you need and the stuff you have to have and the success you want to believe will justify you and give you peace. It means you set 
that entire plan aside because what faith is is transferring your trust from those things to trust in Jesus. That in Christ you're more loved, in Christ you're more forgiven, in Christ you're approved and you're received and you're celebrated and you're treasured, not because you've done well, but because He is good. And here's, what, here's why I read that verse from Isaiah. The first thing faith in Jesus will feel like is rest. Repentance is the biblical word of going from trusting yourself in your own self-justification project to trusting in Jesus. We've been working all this time to prove ourselves to ourselves, to prove ourselves to Stanford, to the job market, to friends, to parents, to social media. And faith means you get to rest from that. And as long as we continue to use all the resources of our life to secure for us the life that we want and the approval that we need and the stuff that we have to have and the success we wanted, as long as we do that and then try to call ourselves a Christian and go out on mission, we will go out in mission with no authenticity and no integrity in any way. Because as, as, as long as you bank your life on you and not Jesus, you can't go out in His mission. This is silly and this sounds trivial, but if I said, hey, try this burrito, it's amazing, and then you're like, have you had one before? And I said, no. You'd be like, that's crazy. I'm not eating the burrito based on your recommendation. Because you haven't invested yourself in it. You haven't tasted it. That makes sense? Okay. <laughs> that makes sense? It sounded trivial, but it was just quick. Okay. My cousin, several years ago, sold me life insurance, and I'm totally skeptical of salesmen because I'm Gen X. I'm not optimistic like millennials and stuff like that. So anybody trying to sell me anything, even my own cousin, I'm totally skeptical of. Then I found out his whole, life, his whole family, including his children and his wife, are all covered by this life insurance. He invested his own life in it. So I can believe what he says. If you don't trust Jesus with your own life, you can't have the strength or the zeal or the integrity or the authenticity or the patience to bring and invite others into His life. Faith is necessary. But here's the other thing. is You have to trust in His grace. That's part of faith. And then faith is extending yourself to others in love. Right? Abraham had to go to bless the nations. That was the beginning. There is no blessing in the nations without trusting God's call to go. Like we said last week, God actually blesses you so that you can be a blessing. That means that you may move out in faith trusting Him. We want to know how it's all going to go down. Like, if, well, if, if I do that, tell me how it's going to happen. He didn't tell Abraham how it's going to happen. But we'll read some more of Genesis in the next couple of weeks. And you'll realize it's bumpier and way more confusing than anybody could have predicted. To, for you to actually imagine what does kindness look like for specific individuals in your dorm and in your path in life. And then in, in your family or maybe just in your room. And then to act with that kindness. That's a leap of faith. It's scary. Right? To imagine your vocation as a place of potential service instead of a place of personal validation. That's scary. To invite somebody to RUF or to tell someone about your Savior Jesus, that's scary. To move towards someone people don't like and is really awkward, that's really scary. It feels risky. It feels risky to me. Because we can't see how it's going to go. And we don't know what it's going to cost us. 
Here's what that means. If you do it, you're acting in faith. It means now that your means that now your life is actually invested in a mission much bigger than you, and that's a worthy mission. It's God's desire that His people bless the nations. Let's pray.